Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. To get ahead in life, we often need to challenge our personal stories and reframe them. Today, I talk with Tammy Hearman, author of Reframe Your Story, about how we can let go, do less, and be more. I hope you enjoy and learn a lot in this one. Good morning, Tammy. Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'd love to start with you by understanding what's on your mind right now. What's motivating you in life and what are two or three things you want to get across to our listeners this morning? Well, good morning, Clint. And you start with the small talk I see here. Um, (laughs) What's motivating me in life and right now? Well, there is one thing I'm really excited about, and that is that I've launched a mission that I'm calling Think Leadership, Think Female. And the work that I do, I've, I've been working in the advancement of women for over a decade. And as I've kind of uh, delved into research and, and whatnot, I've discovered back in the 1970s, it goes back to a stereotype that has been coined, think manager, think male. And it's that all of us associate uh, male traits and characteristics to the term of leadership. And sadly, we still do this today. And if you don't believe me, you can go to the IAT test that's put on by Harvard. It's free online, the implicit association test. And we all still do this. We still associate masculine and male traits and characteristics with leadership. And so I'm on a mission to change that. I'm on a mission to change our thinking around leadership so that it is ideally agnostic. But of course, the work that I do is really focused on female advancement. So my mission is to think leadership, think female. I love it. And we're going to dive through a lot of that today. In your book, Reframe Your Story, there was a fair amount of conversation about some challenges that women are facing in advancement in leadership. And we'll talk about ways that they can overcome those and or we can just highlight the issues so that people are more aware of it. So I'm excited to dive into that with you. And one of the things that jumped out at me early in the book, was about five years before you wrote it, you were going for a walk with your family and your daughter grabbed your hand and pulled you back and said, mommy, daddy has to walk first. What struck you about that story that she must have been telling herself to say that to you? And how did that influence writing the book? You were already working with women to move forward in leadership. But how did that conversation with your daughter sort of tweak your thinking on that, Tammy? Yeah, that's a great question. So much to my daughter's dismay, who's she's now a teenager. (laughs) She is the opening story in the book. And as you described it, what happened is when she said, you know, daddy has to walk first. And I said, well, well, you know, I was just confused at that point. I'm like, well, why does dad have to walk first? And she said, because he's the leader. And when I said, well, why is dad the leader? And she said, because he's a boy. And, you know, that 
statement actually really shocked me because I I thought, how could my daughter, like, I understand this thinking, but how could my daughter think that? We, We were both working, I think at that time, my titling was even, you know, higher than that of, of my husband's, not that she would have known that, but we, we were both working leaders. Um, everyone around her was a working mother. Uh, you know, everyone, every female she came into contact with was in the workplace. So it was just, it was curious to me that, that she was uh, thinking that. And I didn't overreact because how do you, how do you, you know, try to find that out from a, at the time she was seven. But my questioning must have really stuck with her because a little bit later, two years later, actually, we were in the living room. It was after dinner. And she just turned to me and said, Mom, do you know why I said dad was the leader? And I, I, I was shell-shocked. I mean, two, two years later, she had you know, brought this back up to me. And I said, why? And she said, because we were on a camping trip with a number of, of families. And the dads were taking all the kids on a hike. And it was quite a a rocky uh, campground we were at, and there was some cliffs and whatnot. So when they got to the first precarious spot, one of the dads said, oh, hang on, I'll just go first so that he could help the kids go down the rocks. And after the dad said that, one of the rambunctious little boys said, I'm going next. And from that innocuous moment of a man going first and followed by a little boy, she thought, boys go first, boys take the lead. And so to answer your question, that changed my thinking around every day we have these innocuous moments that we don't even realize that are shaping our belief systems, our values. And so for me, it was um, in certainly in doing the work I do, but in writing this book, how do we become more aware of these moments every day where we're telling ourselves something and we have to check and say, hmm, is there fact behind that? Is that a judgment? What assumptions am I making? How is that shaping how I'm behaving? And so that's really how it, it um, impacts the work that I do. And Tammy, can you share with our readers why it's so important to understand the stories that we're telling ourselves and the impact that those stories can have on how we're showing up on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. So this this concept of, you know, understanding our internal narrative is certainly not new. Any psychologist or someone with a background in psychology listening to this will will know that. But I think what's interesting is we haven't dealt with it in the business and organizational realm. So if you take professional athletes or professional performers, for example. I mean, they have known that their head game is just important, if not more important than their physical game. And this has led to a whole profession around sports psychology and, you know, coaches working with performers to really get their their head game right. Um, so they're trained to, to not say, you know, uh, don't miss the shot. Don't forget your lines. Don't, don't No, They're trained to visualize and to say the things and prime their brain with the performance that they do want. So we know this is a well-established um, field and yet we don't apply it to ourselves and our us mere mortals in our normal day lives and, and in business. And so for me, it was really important for, and especially for women since, and I know we'll talk about this more, um, to really become aware of what are all the stories that society has placed on us, that cultures uh, that have been ingrained through thousands of years of patriarchy. I mean, how do we begin to understand how that has shaped how we show up? Would it, would it be helpful for me to kind of give an example of kind of how it shapes, how our stories shape our behaviors? Yeah. So I'll give, I'll give one from kind of my own upbringing. So I was, I was raised in a, in a family 
you know, very loving, hardworking family and was taught to, you know, oh, if you're going to do something well, or if you're going to do something at all, do it well. I can hear my dad saying, you know, do it once and do it really well. Um, If something's worth doing, it's worth doing well. These are all the things that, that I continually grew up with. And of course, that is a wonderful way to impart the values of, you know, hardworking, persistence, perseverance, really, you know, working for things um, that are important. And of course, what would happen is I would give 100% all the time. And that great, that led to good grades in school, that led to me being able to do all kinds of things. But as I progressed in, in my leadership career, what I found was that I was trying to give 100% to, to everything. That's when you experience burnout. That's when you can't, as a senior leader, take on everything, do everything, and do it all to 100%. You, you just can't. And I remember there was a pivotal moment when my manager sat down with me and said, Tammy, you have to learn when good is good enough. You have to learn discernment, the skill of discernment to say, what are the really critical places? And we talked through the criteria, maybe because it's risky, maybe because there's senior stakeholders, it's an important client, whatever it is, where you give 100%. And when are the other areas that you can give a six, a seven, an eight, a, you know? And he said, by the way, your good is most people's excellent. So, you know, you're going to kill yourself if you don't, you don't learn the skill of discernment. So the story I was always telling myself, so my values and my beliefs were shaped by, you know, hardworking parents, great, great values to grow up with, but understand how that shapes their mindset that you walk into situations with. And sometimes it doesn't serve you. Sometimes you have to modify because for me, the behaviors were that I was, you know, over committing, over perfectionism, all those things. Um, and it wasn't serving me well. So values and beliefs shape our mindsets, shape our behaviors. And we have to understand how those cycles help us or hinder us. And for most of our what is it, listeners, they may not realize most of those stories and most of those values and beliefs are trained in childhood. So we'll be talking about that through the show as we talk about reframing your stories. It's not, I mean, we're programmed every day. So that's one of the fun parts. And most of the hardwiring happens in our early childhood. So it's really figuring out what story am I telling myself? Is that story serving me? Is it not? Do I need to reframe it, which we're going to talk about today. And when you talk about women's issues and women in leadership, there's always two ways we can address this. We can go with the structural systemic issues, or we can look at do-it-yourself tactics too. Can you share what those two different routes are and what, which seems to be the approach and the angle that you take. And also there was a study that you quote in the book that looked at the, why the DIY may be the route we want to focus on to help people get to that leadership level, Tammy? Yeah, absolutely. So what you're referring to is, is there can be quite a, actually quite a contentious debate in this, in this whole world of, of, you know, addressing diversity challenges. And the, I'll bottom line it and then we'll get into it is we need both. We need it all. We need to change the structural things. So these are the laws. These are the policies. These are the, you know, the societal issues, the culture, these deep things. We need, we desperately need those to change. And there are a lot of people working on that. Awesome. We need it. And we need to work with individuals. And that's what I do. We need individuals to feel empowered, to feel that they believe in their potential. But sometimes 
that approach gets a gets backlash. And we saw that one of the very first kind of popularized books in this area was um, Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. So that's a number of years ago. Um, it raised this topic to the fore in a way that hadn't been done in a long time. Um, but she faced a lot of backlash saying, you know, it's this isn't about fixing the women. This is about fixing all the stuff that they're facing. And I say, yes, 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 we need all of it. But when, you know, I've worked with thousands of women around the world over the last years, and I tell you, there are so many of them that aren't even getting to those structural barriers because they're not even putting themselves out there because there's such a lack of belief that what they can do is possible. So we need both. We need it all. And my passion happens to be around working with individuals and, and kind of groups in a really supportive setting to have conversations about our own beliefs, our own potential, and things we can try. I'm not the policy expert. I'm not the culture expert. Like, let those people do their jobs. I'll do mine. And together, we will help change this. So you can tell I'm a little bit riled up about this. I can't stand it when people fight. No, it's this. It's this. It's all of it. And if we all just kind of do our piece, then hopefully we can, uh, you know, make movement on this faster. The something you said right in there was very powerful and jumped out at me. And that's we can work on the system to remove the barriers. But if we're not helping the individuals actually get to the point where the barriers are what is the interference, then we're not doing the full service justice. We need to focus on the people to get them to that that level. And then by the time they get there, we need to be able to have those barriers removed that are blocking them from going further. So both the individual and, and the barriers is an approach that you're suggesting there. And one of the things you also said was you talked about the fact that SOMAME is believing that it it is possible. And the of the women that you worked with don't even believe that it's possible to achieve greatness or leadership in their lives. And the biggest story we need to reframe, it may be different for all of us, right, Tammy? We may all have our own different it. But can you share how even asking ourselves, why not, can help us reframe that story of what's possible? Oh, absolutely, Clint. So in the in the first chapter, I actually refer to a few studies that sh- that shows how ingrained this thinking is around is is leadership. Or to your point, I'm not out here saying every person has to become a you know a leader, a senior leader. For some women, it's just getting that plum project. It's just getting into that meeting that they're never invited to. Like that could be the it, right? But the the studies that I, I talk about is there was a uh, an organization that talked to every single former and current female CEO of Fortune 1000 companies or, and other large um, organizations. So every female CEO that they could get their hands on. And of course, the sample wasn't too huge because we know that over time, there hasn't been a lot of women that have run these companies, but there was a, there was a good sample size. And what they found was that 67% of those female CEOs never thought that CEO was possible for them until someone else told them they had it in them. You know, we believe you can do this. Only 9% believed that, you know, or said, I've, I've always kind of wanted that. And and so just that, that pervasive belief that, you know, I need to be told, that I need to be spurred, that I need to be confirmed, that that, that is a place where I belong, that I can do that, is was really, really shocking and disheartening for me. 
And and again, not everyone wants to be a CEO, but the other studies that I quoted was a large, large survey of women between the ages of 18 and 64. So this spans, you know, the, the college to end kind of ending stages of, of working. And the numbers are shocking. I, I forget the exact uh, statistics because was, there was lots in there, but 90 some percent, you know, didn't feel they had the confidence to become a leader, um, to get sponsors, mentors, to ask, ask for a career plan, to uh, like, and on and on. And the numbers are huge. These feelings of, of just not doing that uh, or being able to, or to need permission to do these things. So this, we've internalized, much like the opening story of my daughter, we've internalized that maybe we don't belong there. Maybe we're not good enough to be there. And we need kind of permission and prodding to, to go for it. Um, now, of course, there's tons of success stories and, and things are changing. Thankfully, that's what keeps me in this, this work. But there is still a very pervasive belief that it's, it's not possible. And when we don't have that belief, that's what often leads to imposter syndrome. And you point out that imposter syndrome hits men and women equally, but based on what you've seen, your belief is that men have a higher tendency to, despite having it, and I can definitely say I have imposter syndrome in almost everything I do, we just push through it. Whereas women allow it to hold them back and the belief they have that they're not capable of it you say is a chronic, pervasive, and devastating uh, issue to deal with. Can you share with our listeners what is imposter syndrome? Why do you think it is that men just push through it? And, and how can we help women understand how to get to the other side of imposter syndrome? Because they, they are capable of doing it if they keep going, Tammy. Yeah, absolutely. So imposter syndrome is, uh, you know, the pervasive belief that either, um, you know, we don't deserve our success or that, you know, people will f- find out that we're a fake or a fraud because we're doing it, but we're really not capable of doing it. And it, it shows up in a number of ways. Now, it, the, I'm glad you, I'm really glad you brought this up because the, the term was coined again a number of, of years ago, and it, it was established in a, in a study that um, was, was first performed on women. And I think women have been saddled with the term more so than men, um, even though subsequent studies have shown that, you know, um, over 80% of adults have experienced imposter syndrome at some point in their lives. And anyone who sees themselves as a high performer, or as a perfectionist, right, can, can experience it. But I think the reason that women get saddled with the term more so than men is because of our socialized norms in terms of how we were you know, raised. So for example, still to this day, you know, young boys are expected and congratulated to risk more to whether it's physical risk or whether it's, you know, taking other risks that uh, it is still a normed response that that boys will, you know, talk about how great they are, who's one, you know, who's better than the other person. Um, they kind of, you know, joke that way. Whereas the normed response for girls is still safety don't risk as much, you know, um, be safe, uh, get along, uh, watch out for the feelings of everyone. Don't talk about how you're better than the other person. And so we both are afraid of doing things. We both don't want to risk things, but the normed response is that a man will be strong and push through it anyway. Whereas a girl will, and a woman, 
will kind of stay safe and not risk. So these things are, are very, very much still ingrained in, in our upbringing. But I am so glad, and I was glad to hear you say, Clint, there are more and more men as we're talking about this that are saying, no, 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 I, I have these feelings too. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to normalize that we all feel afraid. We all feel uncertain. We all feel sometimes we're doing things that we're not so experienced in. We all need to normalize that and that will help. And then for those, and, and again, research would show for women, but it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of people. Um, for those that don't, we have to make it safe to take risks. Okay, I'm going to try this and I might not succeed, but manager, leader, do you have my back? Will you help me through this? If it doesn't go as well as, as planned, you know, do, do, I have, do you have my back that, you know, I'm not going to get fired or this or that? Because that's what people's fears are. They're feared that I'll get fired. I, you know, I'll lose my credibility. I'll do this. I'll do... And so then we don't risk. And so we need to make that safer for people to do in organizations for sure. The, and one of the things that hits it is just that you talked about the normed response and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier is the training that we've had through our life, including childhood and, and onward to today. And you suggest that if we don't believe something is possible, we do the work to check where is that story coming from? Where does it originate from? How do you suggest someone with, has an element of psychoanalysis or shadow work to me? How do you suggest someone goes back and figures out where does this belief come from? How do they check the origination of the story? Yeah, so, so and, and that is the reflective work to, to your point is asking ourselves some questions around, okay, when, so we're, we're still talking about kind of risk and imposter syndrome then, you know, where have I failed in the past? And what outcome has that had? Is it, am I really kind of my catastrophizing what I think the outcome, like, did, did it really go badly? Did it have long-term effects? Like, you know, and really think through it. Most people will find, yeah, actually, it wasn't so bad. Um, when were the times that I succeeded? That, see, I, I was fearful. I did push through. And in both of those situations, you're learning. So it's kind of reflecting back, certainly, on times that I've succeeded and, and what can I learn from that and what confidence can I take forward from that? And, you know, what did I learn from the times when it didn't? So a lot of it is and the research has shown that, that one of the best things we can do for ourselves is relive and remind ourselves of our strengths, our wins, our accomplishments. This feeds so much of our internal self-assurance, uh, and so, and we just don't do that. I mean, motivational speakers have been telling us to do this for decades, right? And we always thought it was kind of cheesy Tony Robbins stuff, but it's not. There, there's, there's psychology based on that. We need to feed our stories with our positive aspects. And what we end up doing is the opposite. And I think that's been a, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I think that's, that's what's been happening during the pandemic with a lot of our teenagers too, right? We get into these downward spirals of thinking and, and we need to begin to, to, to reverse and, and change those stories. And one of the ways that I, I thought you had, you talked about the risks that women are taught not to take as many risks as men do. And one of the ways you suggested that they address that is to think less about the risk that they're taking and more about the reward on the other side of the action itself. What does that look like, Tammy? And how can we use that to overcome the blocks that are in our way. Yeah. So, so, so often, you know, 
I'll just liken it. I don't do this in the book, but I'll liken it to a, a pro and con list. We, we look so much at the downside, the risks, the cons, the versus saying, what is the vision? Where can this lead me? What are the rewards? And um, there was a, a woman, I actually tell the story in, in a later chapter, but she was a teacher at a school, a great teacher. And uh, she was approached by the administration to become a principal. And normally, you know, that's an onerous process. There's lots of people, but they approached her. And as we were talking through this, all she could see was, you know, oh my goodness, the more hours and my kids are still young and how am I going to work this out and da, 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 da. And what I talked to her about was, okay, what are the upsides that can come from that? You're nearing the end of your, you know, working. What about the opportunity to influence in a different way, to get more experience, to earn a little more money towards the end? What's the upside to your young kids, you know, being a little more independent, becoming a little more independent? And as we talked it through, what she could see is there was a lot of rewards that could come from that. And part of that is letting go. And I talk about a term called human giver syndrome, right? That, that women are conditioned to care more for um, others than they are themselves. And, and in the, her story, it was, well, how are my kids going to, you know, get to school in the morning, lunches, breakfast? And it, the answer is, well, you have a great partner, you have a great husband that can help with that too. And they can learn. And guess what? At a quite a young age, they're making their own lunches. They now are making suppers, like dinners. And, and so she could see that this actually spurred their independence more. And, you know, was it easy? No. But in the beginning, she was all focused on the risks, the cons. Um, and, and once we kind of talked it through and she saw, yeah, actually, the, there can be a lot, a lot on the reward side. So that, that, I thought that was an interesting story to just kind of highlight how, how we think about the, the risk piece more. Do you think that, is it a larger proportion of women over men that focus on the downside versus the upside of situations, Tammy? Well, I don't, I actually don't know the answer to that. And, you know, a lot of people listening might say, well, wait a minute, actually, women are taking a lot of risks and they're, you know, the entrepreneurialism of women has skyrocketed and all. So yes, there, there definitely is, is a lot of that. But of course, who hires me are, you know, the large organizations, the organizations where there's hundreds or thousands of people and women often find themselves lost in, in those organizations. And what we haven't touched on yet is the, the dual role that, you know, more so women play than men on the home front too. So when we talk about what's possible, oftentimes it's, it's no, I, I believe in my potential. I believe I can do this. But I just got too much stuff happening on the home front. This isn't the time. Or, you know, I'm not able to make this work from a whole life perspective. So that can get in the way too. Kind of, you know, all our to-do lists at home and and at, um, and at work. Yeah, let's dive into that. Because uh, one of the things that people historically thought, and then science has shown that's not accurate, was that women suffered from an ambition gap and didn't necessarily want those opportunities or, or those roles. And the research is showing that is not accurate. What is the major challenge is what you're talking about, is the fact that they're not in a position where they're set up for success, given the system, given the home life. Can you talk about some of that that you were just going into and maybe we'll dive deeper into it? Yeah. And I was so thankful to to see that research that you, you're referring to as um, BCG. And it was, again, it was a large uh, scale study. And, and what it showed was that 
for men and women of that kind of that age range where it's those that's when the family planning years kind of tend to to kick in. They found that when an organization was viewed as progressive from a diversity standpoint, men and women were, you know, went after promotions and received promotions at virtually the same rate. So when the organization was progressive, so it supported, you know, women and families and and all of that. But when an organization was viewed not as progressive from a diversity standpoint, the the gap between the promotions of men and women were were was much much larger. And and so what that shows is it's it's not the 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 women, the, it's the organization, the environment, and the culture that was kind of helping them be successful or not. And so what's I think what's challenging here is oftentimes, and and I've seen this both with men and women is we don't carve out the expectations and the boundaries in the workplace. We're so afraid of making asks or, or you know, alternating things or saying no. Um, and I get that. Like, I get that. It's, it's, it, you know, we feel like we want to be this great worker. But I'll tell you, it can be done. So I was in a senior leadership position at a global consulting firm. And at the time, we had, we had caregivers at home, these wonderful women, and she wanted to start taking night classes because so, she wanted to progress in, in her career as well. And I said, absolutely. But that meant I had to be home at four o'clock. So a senior leader at a professional services firm, and I have to be home at four o'clock. I said, yeah, I can make that work. I took calls in the car. I took calls when I got home. I just left and, and I didn't sneak out the door. I said, I'm going home now because my caregiver has to go. I let people know I wanted to role model that. I remember times my husband would say, well, I couldn't leave the meeting early. My boss was in there. And I said, I was in the meeting with my CEO. And what I said to him was, I have a hard stop at five o'clock. And he said, oh, okay, that's fine. Well, do you think at five o'clock, they all magically turn to me and say, okay, Tammy, you have to go now. No, it was up to me to do that. And so at, you know, five minutes to five, I said, oh, just a reminder, I have to, I have a hard stop at five. And they said, yeah, no problem. And then at five o'clock, I said, thank you. I have to leave now. I'll catch up on what was missed. And they're like, yeah, okay, thanks. Right. So we have to do that. Right. So I carved out that environment. And you know what happened was I had young women in droves coming to me saying, how do you do it? How do I do this? You're such a role model. You're right. And it wasn't easy, but, but it can be done. But we often don't. We're just too afraid, right? To show our value and to kind of kind of demand what, you know, uh, the, the schedule that we need. And it's an interesting one because you, as you're saying it, this is one of those areas where I wonder if men are actually more fearful than women, right? All right. And is it, I'm a dad, I have two young sons. My wife is able to say, Hey, I have to be at pickup or I have to be at drop off, but I have such a fear in my career and in my role of saying to my boss, hey, uh, I have to go do pickup or I have to do drop off because of the norms in how I've been trained. Oh, boys don't do that. Like if you say that, they're going to think less of you. And so part of my responsibility, two responsibilities, one in my family, I have to start to help my partner so she has more capacity on her plate because she's busier than ever. And two, I need to recognize that I could be modeling for people at work that a family is a a two-person equation. And if there are young men who need to see that behavior, 
if there are young women who need to be able to say to their partner, hey, like my boss leaves to pick up his kids or comes in a little bit later because he's dropping his son off. And this is the first year I've actually started doing that, Tammy. And the realization of how much of an impact that has on my hours and just having to always be prepared that, hey, I got to be out of here by this time because I'm picking my son up from school or I've got to be a drop off. It's a whole different world than I'd ever known. And it only started with one of our sons hitting high school. Up until now, I hadn't ever been involved. So this is, you raised some pretty powerful points there, Tammy. Well, I'm, yeah, and I'm glad you say that. And you know what? I've had, I can think of two amazing male leaders who were always family first. And the last one that I reported to, he led the way. He was a role model. He would leave, you know, three o'clock, get on the go train, have his meetings on the go train. You could always call him. You could, you always knew he was available. Sometimes he'd be picking up from soccer practice with the kids in the minivan and telling them to be quiet because he was on a call. And of course, everyone thought it was endearing, but he always did that. He always showed that, that you know, you can make life whole for everyone. And, you know, Clint, are you working any less because you're doing pickup? Are you failing your organization? No, like we make it work. We deliver, we add value and we make it work. So I think, you know, leaders have to be less fearful that, that, you know, people are doing the work because they're living their, you know, (laughs) their other whole life. And I think maybe the pandemic is going to help that. The flexibility that we've had to have in organizations now because of the of, of the situation we've been in over the last couple of years, I hope it kind of helps leaders and organizations understand that, that we are whole people, that we have, you know, worthwhile lives outside of work, that, that if we can balance, we will be better off for every organization we work for. In some ways, I wonder if the pandemic may be a hindrance in some ways to the flexibility and and I, and I wonder, Tammy, if you've seen whether there's any difference between men and women and how they're handling it. And part of what I'm seeing, you know, I, I'll take my, my wife as an example. My office is in the backyard and I'll be able to look back at the house and see kind of where everyone is. And, and I'll be in here working on a podcast later at night or, or something else I have on the go. And almost any time I look up at the window to our bedroom where my wife has her desk set up, she's at it like all hours, all days. And it almost feels like that taking away of the separation of the office and the home has led some people to think I need to always be at my desk. And no, I I slipped out to, to your point, whole life, like I slipped out to do something for my son to do a drop off. And I, I have to make that up. But taking it almost to an extreme, like if you were in the office and you slipped out to grab your kids, you you might make up half an hour of that, given the amount of time, right? But you wouldn't sit at your desk for an extra three hours. And I, I don't know if it's impacting women or men differently. Or and I, and I think I have seen research that showed early in the pandemic, everyone was so productive, like the balance, the flexibility, the being able to work where you want, when you want. But then slowly people started to burn out because there was no dividing line between work and home. And, you know, every, it reminds me of it every time I look back at the house and I see her in that window. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. So research has shown that women certainly have absolutely 
bore the brunt of kind of doing double duty more so than men um, in terms of, of home and work, especially times when, you know, kids were home from school, that a lot of women had left the workforce when that happened. Um, and it has led to increased um, kind of burnout and mental health. But for everyone, we need to reset the norms of what flexibility means, because it can't mean always on. It can't mean working all the time. But what we, what a lot of organizations haven't done is say, okay, we're going to measure, you know, by output and by objectives and goals. We don't care about the number of hours. We don't care, like, meaning like we don't expect you to be on for 12 hours. And we have to set um, rules and boundaries around what does off time mean? What does urgent mean? Because people are just jumping. Like when the boss is just sending emails, hey, I need this. The boss needs to say, I need this at this time. Don't worry about it. It's not until the end of the week. I only need this small amount of information, not this big report that people blow it up to be. So we have to be very, very mindful of workload and how we're setting expectations for people because you're right. Otherwise, people are just working around the clock and it, it, it's, it's worse. Right? In many cases, it's worse. You, you mentioned, Clint, it just reminded me, I just... um published an, an article. And what I did was I, I spoke with uh, women from different countries. So Japan, Germany, the UK and the US. Um, and of course, I have the Canadian perspective. And I did ask about the implications of the, the pandemic on, on um, working women. And it was consistent across the board. I mean, just, you know, too much double duty, burnout, women leaving the workforce. But in Japan, it was interesting because in Japan, uh, they're notoriously known for, you know, long commutes, long days. And the men actually liked working from home because they, they all that commuting time, um, they could now spend with their family. Whereas the women in those households say, we don't like this because I have no time alone. You know, small houses, I'm running everything. And there was actually an increase in suicide rates in women in Japan during the pandemic. Yeah, and they saw a market increase. So it, it has had really adverse impacts for sure. Um, but when I made my comment earlier, I think what I meant by it could, the, you know, there has to be some silver linings from, from, from this new way of working is that it really has brought to the fore more conversations around mental health, around um, people evaluating what's important in their lives, around making decisions around, around how they want to have impact and where they want to spend. So all of that is good stuff. Um, conversations in the workplaces now that we've just never had before are happening now. So I think that's progress. Yeah, the the simple fact that you would have never thought to prior to the pandemic, right? You would have never thought to say, well, some people might have, but on average, there wasn't that much training going on saying, hey, you should talk to everybody that reports to you and just have a mental health check-in, right? Like, how are you doing? <laughs> like, are you okay? <laughs> Right. Like, you know, instead of just did you get A, B, C, D and E done, like actually check in on the whole person and make sure they're OK, because the the one thing for sure we saw and I've, I, I emphasize it as much as I can. I became much more open about talking about my past mental health challenges during the pandemic, because you have to be able to role model to the people on your team. Hey, like be comfortable. You can be comfortable talking to me. I've been through it. I'll be open with people. You don't have to, you, but if you ever need someone, you can talk to me and, 
the key being that during the pandemic, the isolation that we were experiencing just amplified mental health challenges. So people who had anxiety skyrocketed. You had depression, went up. If you never had it, all of a sudden people had it. And many people I know, the interesting one, we're actually seeing it in our fathers, right? So men in their 60s and 70s who never never talked about mental health, all of a sudden are saying to their kids in their 30s and 40s, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with anxiety, I'm dealing with depression. And I think a large part of what's driving that is the is the COVID, the isolation from from what we've been doing to handle it. And I total digression, but w- w- whenever we get on mental health, that's something that's really been jumping out at me as we've seen it. Tammy, are are you seeing any impact on people in the workforce? Is it is it having an impact on women then making the decision? Hey, this is my mental health. This isn't working with all this double work. I need to give up on one of these two things. What are some of the implications you're seeing from that? Yeah. So, I mean, and, and a lot of this is anecdotal, but I mean, I know I have a lot of colleagues who who their work in the mental health arena has just skyrocketed, whether it's coaching or workshops or, or whatever it may be. So absolutely. You know, when women uh, were leaving the workforce, a lot of the reasoning given at least was, you know, to, to care for things at home. But we know the stats have shown that, that there's been, an, you know, certainly an, an increase in, in um, mental health, um, even, you know, domestic abuse, all of these things throughout the pandemic. Again, if we look at though the a bit of a silver lining around bringing these conversations to the fore. I think everything is up for conversation now. So in my interviews with the the woman from the UK, they are now talking, um, they are, I believe, leading the way in the UK on conversations around menopause, for example. So now we're saying, because there are hordes of women leaving the workforce because of the really extreme and adverse effects um, that some women experience during menopause. So I think now we're, I mean, everything's open to talk about. We're saying, hey, organizations, like, listen, we are humans dealing with so much shit. Like, we got to talk about this because, you know, we want to all sit in that office meeting and and just pretend everything's fine. But it's not. It's not fine a lot of the time. So I think that's an upside for sure is that, okay, we have to become more human in our organizations. The, uh, we'll flip it We'll flip it back to a different angle. The One of the things I always talk about with people I'm coaching and helping move forward in life is the first thing you have to absolutely have is you need to know what you want. You need to have a vision of where you want to go. And you highlighted a study that showed that women were less likely than men to know how they wanted their careers to advance and were less likely to have a vision for their future. And so obviously, no vision, it's hard to get there. So this is where you start to talk about the importance of having a personal vision. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think a few things are going on here. One is, uh, you know, and I mentioned kind of human giver syndrome and whatnot. So we're conditioned to kind of take care of everyone else, put ourselves last. During, you know, family planning or caretaking years, you know, of course, women plan their careers in shorter increments because for so many, they're just trying to get through the day um, with managing everything. 
But what I say is, if we're honest, we often spend a lot more time planning for a big purchase, like maybe a house or, you know, renovating or a vacation than we do our careers. And so what I am begging women to do is to take a little bit of time, and I call it a personal vision because, you know, work and, and home are intertwined, is, you know, what, what do you want to be? Who do you want to be? What impact do you want to have? So we don't have to, I think women get really scared. Oh, I have to have a, a job aspiration. I have to say, oh, I want to be VP by this year. No, you don't have to say that. You have to, you have to be able to talk about the impact you want to have, the skills and experiences you want to Uh, work towards. And when we do that, we are so more likely to have strength to say yes to things, to say no to the right things. I often talk about my personal vision is about being a role model, um, you know, for, for my daughter and others. So when I'm faced with a decision to have a tough conversation, I'm like, shit, part of my personal vision is to be a role model. So I have to have this conversation. Okay, let's go. And so when we're grounded in that, that who we want to be and the impact we want to have, then it really gives us strength to, to navigate things that, that can feel fearful. Um, so that, that's kind of the individual side. And then in organizations, as, as the studies have shown, like we have to make it easier to have career conversations with women. We have to not penalize women for talking about their strengths, for asking about, you know, things they want to go after. Because, you know, research shows that, that women are penalized more than men for, you know, asking for things, for you know, talking about their successes. Um, so, so we need to make that easier for women to do that. And if you're, if you're working with someone who's never gone through that exercise of creating a, a personal vision, what are some simple steps that they can take to start to put together that here's the impact I want to have. Here are some of the skills and experiences I want to get. Like, what are some simple steps that someone who's never done it before can take, Tammy, to start to lay out that vision for themselves? Yeah. And, and I go through some of those questions in the book too, but it's, it's first of all, you know, what am, what am I known for now? So let's start with today. What am I known for now? You know, what are my greatest strengths? Kind of doing that, that piece of today. And and just even doing that piece will help you with your performance reviews and your conversations with your managers. Like even that piece is valuable. But then we have to say, okay, what are the values and beliefs that I stand for? So that's kind of the second thing. And that grounds us in in times when we, you know, we need to make decisions that don't feel like they're aligned with with our values and beliefs. So there's that piece. And then is what do I want to be known for? What legacy do I want to leave? What impact do I want to have? And that's the future piece. So then that helps us navigate what opportunities and experiences we want to to go after. And so many women just have the experience of kind of going through their career and maybe they've been tapped and maybe they've been pulled along, but it just feels like this, you know, aimless path. And and really we we deserve, we all deserve to make decisions and have control over that because uh, we work for a long time and to just kind of move through it aimlessly is not a good place to be. And so when we can articulate our vision to others, then they can help us along the way. The I had a guest on once, Tammy, and they, they had a wonderful line that I like to absorb and eventually it will be my own line is, is a crap map is better than no map. Right. So we may not know exactly where we want to go, 
may not know the exact stops on the way, but it, but if we have some sort of vision, and that helps us to create the basis of some sort of general guide going in a direction, then we're more likely to get there. But if we if we don't have any vision to begin with, we're only going to get where our vision goes, which is nowhere, right? Nowhere. I love that. Okay, I might steal that too, because I can't tell you how many times I've been in workshops with, with women and they're like, but I don't know. And you know, I say to them, then make it up for now and know that you can change it whenever you want. Like for now, you just need to be able to talk to people about something. And, you know, like you you can change, as I said, but but if you say nothing, if you're like, no, I'm good, thanks. Like that's what we say. No, I'm good. I just want to keep learning. And we use this learning crutch, right? No, I, I'm good. I, I just want to keep learning. I'm, it's like, no, tell people what experiences you want to have, what meetings you want to get into, what projects seem interesting, what role we, we have to be able to talk about that. And then we can change. We can change it along the way. That's fine. Yeah, it's not definitive. It's this is this is the general parameters or a rough guide of where I want to get to. Here are some things I think I need to learn, some skills I need to pick up. And that's part of the issue, right? The more the more definitive we can get, then we can say, okay, well, if I want to get to point Z and I'm on point X or maybe T, where are my skill gaps? What do I need to develop, to be in that role that I eventually want to get into? What skills don't I have? What skills do I need to pick up? So it doesn't necessarily be I, I need to be in that role, but, but that helps you recognize, hey, here's four or five skills that I think I need to work on. And you know what I encourage, Clint, is, again, for anyone, but especially for women, is I, I don't even say, don't even have a development plan with like skills. Have an experience plan. Because it's too easy to say, okay, I need this skill, this skill, and this skill, and I'm going to learn it through a course, a book, and maybe, you know, my mentor talking to them. And it's like, no, that gets us, gets us nowhere. It gets us very, very short, right? It's not good. But if I say I need to gain these experiences, and of course you'll learn the skills along the way, but they, these experiences, that's what women are missing. They're not getting into those plum strategic projects. They're not, those are the things you need to advance. They're not getting into those meetings. They're not meeting those stakeholders. So I really encourage organizations to ditch the development plan and talk about an experience. Run a hard project, be a lead on this, not go go read a book on how to do it. Actually do it. The and one of the fun parts when I when I read what you talked about with learning, and you just mentioned it a few times there, is Many women do have a continuous learning mindset, but a challenge may be that it's not well-directed. And what that reminded me of, I reinforce this with my two sons all the time, is there's a very big difference between practice. You know, like my son will go out in the backyard and we have a basketball hoop and he'll be be wearing a pair of flip-flops. And, and I'm sort of saying to him, like, yeah, you're taking shots, but like it's not game mode, right? You're, and nothing you're doing is deliberate practice. So what are the things you need to work on in your game? You need to work on shooting from this spot. You need to be in game mode. You need to practice this exact experience, right? Is that difference between just generally practicing or generally learning and learning for a very specific outcome and goal can you unpack that one for us? And how can we help women change from just that continuous learning mindset 
to a directed learning mindset. Yeah, thank you. And and I did quote some research in in that chapter too around, you know, what they found was was that yes, women continually learn, but it, it wasn't directed towards a specific goal. So sometimes it was helping, sometimes it wasn't. And I call this the credential crutch. So the number of women, young women that have come to me um and said, I'm thinking about taking, you know, a master's or a PhD or this certification or the this or that. And my first question is, okay, how does that help you towards your vision? And they're like, well, what do you mean? Well, okay, so you'll have another, you know, few letters behind your name, but how does that help you get to the next steps that you want or to who you want to be or become? And and they can't answer that question. And I think there's such a fear that if I just skill up more, you know, do really good work and skill up more, I'll be tapped on the shoulder to right, take something on. And it doesn't work that way because, first of all, you know, a lot of the data is showing that women are are more educated now, um, you know, in more MBA schools, in this, in that. And it's not translating into the advancement. It's it's just not. And it's because of what we just talked about. You can have all of the knowledge in your head, but until you apply it in the actual experiences, for me, I'm like, go out there and do it. Do it because so many other people are out there doing it that are less credentialed, less experienced, and less intelligent than you. So, right? So, we, we kind of sometimes we hide behind the learning mode. And listen, I am not knocking education certification. Like, those things are valuable if they fit into your vision and if they're actually going to help achieve that. You raise a very important point, though, right? It's learning, reading, it's all important, it's all valuable. But none of it trumps action, right? Until we actually apply what we're learning, until we actually apply what we're reading, you and I can have a conversation. But if I never take what I've learned from you and apply it to a conversation with young women at work or in my life, then I haven't really gotten the value out of that conversation that I should have. Because it's great to hear something and say, oh, that makes sense. But if we never act on things. And I think this is one of the things we want to reinforce with with all young people is nothing at the end of the day beats acting, right? And the actual doing. And is there a reason? So, And does this even just come back to what we started talking about at the beginning? Is this a fear of belief that I can apply it? Is What is it that stops that action ability? And make someone say, well, no, no, I need, I need one more degree before I can start. So I don't know if, if that's been studied or not, but you're, you're making me think about a story of uh, a woman in a workshop who she spent her entire career in marketing. And she wanted this, this high potential program I was running was to create future GMs, general managers. And so she knew she couldn't just have a marketing pedigree. And so she wanted to get a sales role to begin to expand her, her business experience so she could move into a GM role. And, and she was terrified. She was, almost wasn't even going to apply because all the other applicants were salespeople, right? They had sales experience. And she's like, how can I even do this? As we talked about it and through the program and with her coach and, and all of that, she had to sell her value and her unique perspective. So again, anyone can benefit from this. This isn't necessarily a female thing. But when she went in there and said, listen, like, I, you know, I know you've got a lot of salespeople. I can, you know, learn those sales skills. But the 
customer insights that I bring from my you know, 10 years in marketing, how I can think about the customer, how I get all of that. Um, she sold her unique value proposition. And guess what? She got it. She got the role. All those other salespeople were like, what are you talking about? You, you, know, you hired a marketing person. She got it because she was able to show that. So I think we have to, instead of just, you know, leaning on, I'm going to learn more, I'm going to theoretically kind of get more info in my brain. We have to be able to talk about how do the skills, experiences, and insights I have, how can they apply in this new way? How can they apply in this area? I don't need more. I just haven't even harnessed everything I have inside of me already. And so that's the skill we need to learn. I had a woman, she was reading a, a draft copy of my book before it came out. And, and when she read that part around, you know, the credential crunch, she said, oh my God, I spent $10,000 on this amazing course. And, and I'm already thinking about what's the next one. And she said, and you just reminded me, I haven't even squeezed like 10% out of what I've gained from that. She's like, I have to squeeze out the investments I've already made before just saying, okay, what's next? Let's get more credentials, you know, behind. So my tip would be, you know, think about how do you apply everything you've already done and know already and the insights you have, and then how do you just squeeze that out before just thinking about, you know, getting more. Yeah. It's definitely not only women who do it. You're reminding me of that because I'm always taking courses on personal development and, and it's okay. What's the next course before it's like, well, have you actually like, have you actually done anything with that last course you took or are you just racking up courses and maybe even using 10% of it's good, but that's such a good point, Tammy. It's such the credential crutch. I wrote that one, wrote that one down and I'll be really thinking about it. And then, you know, part of what we talked about earlier with COVID, with the pandemic, with life and the stress, like at the end of the day, some of us just want to, we want to come home and have a glass of wine or, or watch Netflix and just, just relax. And you, you talk about this in the book. And I know there's a lot more binge watching going on, but that's, it's not really a satisfying way to live, right? But so many are just focused on, it's the end of the day, like, I'm just going to focus on the day. And then it's, you know, you start to live like a bit of a Groundhog Day existence. And so what you talk about is looking up and further out on the horizon. Try to just pull yourself back, look up, look out. Can you share what that looks like and, and why that's so important to get us out of that Groundhog Day rut? Yeah, so chapter two is look up, look out. And, and that's the, the piece around the vision that we've been talking about. And listen, I am a self-care junkie and I love to have my glass of wine and uh, Netflix just like everyone else. But there are times when we need to say this feels good in the moment, but how is it serving me longer term? And we can apply that to anything. We can apply that to exercise. We can apply that to our career. We can apply that to anything, right? And so what I am urging women to do is say, okay, whether you're an Instagram scroller or a, you know, wine and Netflix watcher, like carve out some time and maybe it's on a walk or, or something like that to, to just say, okay, ask the questions of yourself that, that we talked about, you know, who am I? Who do I want to be? And how do I start to let that guide me day to day? And, and when we engage people in that discussion, then they will help us. Like I had someone just text me today, this amazing picture that I completely missed in the, in the news feeds. I don't know how I could have missed it, but she's like, oh my God, this is for your post today on, you know, go do a post on LinkedIn or something. So when we engage people in what our visions are, people will help. They'll help us. So, you know, don't, you don't have to get rid of all the, the fun stuff, but 
but we do have to carve out a little bit of time because it's so beneficial. And some of the other research has shown that, and this is amazing, when we believe that that we are serving our higher selves, higher meaning like we are really fulfilling who and what we want to be, um, and that'll look different for everyone, all cause mortality rates have decreased. So when we have that connection to, to something, and I'm not even talking spiritual, for some people it might be spiritual, but I'm just talking about when we fulfill kind of the dreams for who and what we want want to become, we, we are happier. Research show we are happier. We live longer. Um, so isn't that worth giving up one, you know, looking up and out and giving up one night of, of Netflix and wine drinking? I think so. Yeah, because if you don't know, if you haven't asked the questions, if you haven't looked up, and you don't know what your meaning is, you don't know what your purpose is, it's hard to live it. But if, but if you do that work, and, and a lot of people worry where they say, well, I can't live my purpose, like I've got a day job. And it's, well, you, A, you need to know what your purpose is. And B, there are ways to address your purpose outside of the day job or, or to say, hey, my day job, you know, I always look at it, Tammy, my day job, I'm an accountant, I'm a CFO. And my purpose is helping as many humans as possible grow personally, professionally, and financially. It, almost 30 people on my team. That's 30 people who I can go for a walk with, I can talk with, and I can have those career conversations that you and I are talking about right now. And so 80% of my role might not be my purpose, but 20%, I'm able to hit my purpose. And I just, that, that allows you to feel good in the role. But if I'd never done the work to say, well, what is my purpose? I, I would have focused on maybe the 60% of the job that I don't like and let it, you know, drag you down versus saying, oh, this is an op- awesome opportunity to live my purpose. And, and sure, I got to do this other stuff, but, but I get to do that. The, how often would you suggest someone revisit that personal vision statement? And what might a rhythm and routine around it being? Yeah, well, like I would say as often as they feel it's necessary, but at minimum, like yearly and whatever yearly means to you, whether it's calendar or your f- company's fiscal year, but at least yearly. And, and it can take any form. I have some people tell me they have vision boards, which is very picture focused. Some people write um, paragraphs or a statement. And, and I, all I say is, I don't care what it looks like, but you have to be able to have a few concise statements to be able to share with other people so that you can, you know, get that help. The other thing that you're, you're making me think of is, is um, in the book, I reference John Coleman's work, and he's one of the authors of Passion and Purpose. And, and what I loved about what you said, and I think the fears that people have is that most people think, oh, their passion's going to, or their purpose strike them like a bolt of lightning, like all these motivational speakers you, you know, you see, oh, and it, it actually doesn't work that way. We have to both make our work meaningful and take meaning from our work. Um, and, and so we, we actually have to create it. And that, that reminded me, we were talking about mental health uh, earlier. And one, kind of one of the, the, the big ahas I had is, you know, there was a time when I wasn't feeling so great either. And, and I started reading all these happiness books. And, and what I realized was we actually have to work at being happy. Like happiness just doesn't happen to us. Just like purpose and passion doesn't just happen to us. We, it, it takes work to be a happy person. It takes work to have passion and purpose. So, but we all think, oh, it's just going to come to us and, you know, it'll be all great. 
And and if it doesn't, then we're fearful. And we don't, we're not going to work on it. So, you know, it, we have to create it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that on that note, I was listening to a TED Talk yesterday and she referenced from positive psychology, they've come up with a model for how to live a good life and, uh, or otherwise what historically was viewed as happiness. And you're exactly right. There's an actual model. It's called the PERMA model. And for each of the steps, and it's called the PERMA model because that's a, an acronym for, for the, and I, I forget all of them off the top of my head, but relationships is in there, the mission is in there, positive emotions is in there, and for each one, it's like, hey, here's what this looks like, and here's some things you can do to achieve that. And so it's like, oh, okay, so if I want to be happy, I have, I look at these five things and I make sure on a daily basis I'm doing them, right? I'm doing the work in order to be able to say, I'm happy. And so it's it's a very good point that even happiness, whatever it is we want, it just requires, go back to what we were talking about before, it just requires that action, right? We can't just sit on the couch and watch Netflix and say, I want to be happy. This Netflix show is going to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, well, exactly. And the other thing I love that you said too is, I think people often get paralyzed by, um, you know, oh, passion and purpose. My vision, I'd have to have a grand scale and I have to be like, I just saw a segment with Malala before I came on with you. You know, I have to have the impact of Malala. It's like, no, you know, you said I impact 30 people. That's amazing. If I have one person, <laughs> there's usually a few more, but if I have one person from a speech or a workshop that comes to me and says, I no longer feel alone. I, you know, I got a great tip. I'm going to go have this conversation. Like if, even if it's, I'm like, I've had impact. And so that's the other thing I think that makes people fearful. They think, oh my God, I have to have this grant. It's like, no, you, you just have to have small little impacts and that feels good. Absolutely. And it also feels good as someone, you know, in your role or in my role, people don't realize it. When you have a workshop or a social audio media room and someone reaches out after and says, hey, what what you share impacts me in a positive way. It's such a such a heartwarming feeling. You don't need it to do the work, but it definitely makes you realize, hey, I wasn't wrong. There's there's something here and, and I have to keep pushing through. And, and, and you the next question I had You've highlighted it a few times. You know, some some of us get in our own way because we try to do too much. And I loved the line you had in your book where it's from what I get a shitload done to I got to do less shit. And can you dive into that for us? And, you know, one of the things we may even touch on is just the importance of a of a not to do list for people. Yeah. So this whole chapter is about, it's called Do Less Shit, and it's all about moving from the tactical to the strategic. Um, now, I've worked with high potentials, you know, for, for many, many years, and, and it's a challenge for anyone who's looking to rise to more senior positions. And it's a particular challenge for women. So I'll tell you how I came about this. Um, a number of years ago, I had completed my first 360 assessment. You know, that's where everyone gets to give feedback on your leadership capability. And um, lots of good insight. Um, but one that came for me that was important was that I was viewed as more tactical than strategic. And I thought, how can this be? Like, I, I know I'm strategic. How, why is this happening? And so, you know, I, I worked with a coach on that. Um, but it also got me interested in what, 
like what does it take to be perceived as strategic and 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 is there a gender difference here and sadly what i came to find is that women are categorically perceived as less strategic so i looked at many many 360 studies i continue to seek them out i continue to ask organizations and i'm seeing the same patterns so i'll say to your listeners if you have data different please let me know <laughs> because I want this to be wrong. Um, But I think there's a number of things that are happening. Women tend to delegate less. Women tend to, you know, as as we've talked about, have multiple to-do lists at uh, home and at work. Um, We have a belief in meritocracy, which is if I just put my head down and do great work, I'll be noticed for that. We have a pride of execution, you know, give it to me, I'll get it done. A good team player says yes and pitches in and picks up the slack of others. That's how we've been socialized. So all of that leads to us being in the weeds. Um, and, And... to rise to more senior positions, you have to be able to say no. You have to have your to don't list as you talk about. And the funny thing is, I experienced this and I've heard many women experience this. When you finally find that, that power and fortitude to begin saying no, to begin um, really carving out what your strategic priorities are, you'll get flack for it. You will, but you'll also get rewarded for it. You know, that's when I started to get promoted more. That's when I've seen other women start to get promoted more because we can't do everything. And when you're so diluted in doing these long executional to-do lists, no one sees your strategic capability and it's there. We have it. We're just too in the weeds to have it be noticed or showcased. Um, so that, that's what that chapter is. How do we begin to get out of the weeds? And, and the most fearful thing for women is having those conversations around, you know, carving out like the no, the no conversation, the strategic no. And I don't know if you've heard the saying, when you say yes, you're saying no to something. How can we use that to realize what am I saying no to? Yeah. So I think it's, it's a very deliberate, I love that word as much as you do, the deliberate thought process of, okay, if I say yes to this thing, then how is that taking away time and effort and resources from all of my other strategic priorities? So literally going through that thought process. Okay, I'm saying yes to this, to taking this on. What is falling by the wayside then? What what does that mean? And when we think through that, then of course, the, the writing is on the wall. Now, women are also volunteered more, voluntold more. They're, in, they're asked to engage in more grunt work and they're penalized when they say no to it. So this is not an easy thing for women to do in organizations. But we have to start saying, this doesn't serve me anymore. For myself, when I was working through this skill set, I set a mantra for myself that I'm going to piss someone off this week. That literally was the mantra I'd say inside my head. And so when I'd have those fearful no discussions, I could then after celebrate and go, yes, that felt crappy, but yes, I hit my mantra of I'm going to piss someone off and I got something off my to-do list. Awesome. So it helped me get through those tough conversations. One of the things that we were talking about was women tend to keep their head down and think my work is just going to speak for itself. How do we get them from that to realizing I have to be the one who speaks for myself. And the other thing that you talk about is they may just be thinking, well, my manager should just know how good I am. How did they become their own ambassador? Yeah. So this is really the tough 
topic of self-advocacy. And honestly, no matter what I'm talking with women about, these questions always come up, this particular topic that, that you're raising. So the first thing I always say, which seems silly, but it needs to be said, is that results don't speak. They are mute. The great report that you just wrote can't speak. The code that you just programmed can't speak. The customer meeting that you just, like, it can't talk and tell anyone. And, and so, you know, just kind of internalizing that, like results don't speak. They need to be given voice. So that's the kind of the first thing people laugh. And then it's like, no, 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 no. Like, this is truth. So that's the first piece. And then the second is, so what holds women back from sharing these, you know, this is what happened. This is the great result that came about is that we have a fear of bragging or boasting. And so I'm told a very helpful way of thinking people really benefit from this is I talk about confident authenticity, pride. Pride is not a dirty word. Pride spurs our self-confidence, our self-assurance. No one goes to work to do a crappy job, to not add value, to make people angry. Like we don't go to work to do those things. We want to do well. And you know what? When we do do well, it feels good. That is a human feeling and it's and it helps with our confidence in that positive cycle. So I take them through exercises of how do you talk about things um, with genuine, genuine pride. So even use those words. You know, I wanted to tell you what happened in this project. You know, I'm proud of, of how this turned out. You know, here's the impact that I had. Here's what I'm looking forward to taking forward in this. Da, 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 da. And we practice those conversations. The one thing that I really have to like watch for with women is the we, 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 we. Because we tend to say, we did really well in this. My team did this. And we think, oh, we're being a great leader or a great team member because, you know, I'm giving, giving props to the people around me. And yes, you are. And you have to take ownership for what you did. Because guess what? Great leaders are rare. This team just didn't happen to do, like you led them. You did that. And so we really practice kind of combining the I and the we and knowing the times when the we just has to be removed completely and feeling good about talking about the things that you're doing. It's a journey. (laughs) And you mentioned the fear of bragging and then The other thing you talked about is one of the places where we can usually advocate for ourselves is when we're in meetings. But one of the challenges women have in meetings is speaking up. And that's for a multitude of reasons, whether it's a, a fear of feeling stupid. As an example, how can we help women overcome that and get comfortable speaking up for themselves in those situations, Tammy? So I'll talk about the women and then what we all have to do as team members too is, yeah, so some of the stories we tell ourselves are, you know, I don't know enough. I'm not senior enough. You know, I don't know as much as them, whatever it may be. I don't want to say it in a way so I don't sound intelligent. I don't have all the information. These are all the things that we tell ourselves rather than saying, and again, bolstering ourselves even before we get in there, I have value to add. I have significant insights, observations, data, experience, whatever it may be in this, you know, role, project, organization. So we really have to first bolster ourselves to say, uh, we got lots of value to add, no matter what you're like, you might be in levels with people more senior than you, like you have value to add. So that's the first talk we have to say to ourselves. And then the second is we talk about 
what are some great tips for um, for inserting yourselves in, in meetings? So I always talk about back pocket phrases. This is my go-to lines um, that I always have at the ready to bring a point of view, to give a contrary point of view, things like, that's interesting. I have data that is uh, a bit different from that. Uh, you know, share, I'd like to share kind of how I'm thinking about this or the famous Brene Brown. The story I'm telling myself about this is, or so I've got a bunch of back pocket phrases and those are, those tend to be helpful to kind of get, get women to be able to insert themselves into conversations. I also am a big advocate of taking, t- you know, little notes in our notebook not just of what's happening in the meeting. Sometimes I say ditch that and start putting down points around how you can break in, reminders to yourself, a mantra, your back pocket phrase, whatever it may be. Like use the note taking that we do already for your advantage to to speak up. So that's the that's the the side for the women. The other side is <laughs> we have to make it easier for women to do this, not speak over them, not interrupt them, not belittle them. And and sadly, you know, so much research has shown that's still happening. Um, so as team members, we have to give voices to the minorities in our meetings. And minority can be any form. It could be based on level, um, based on gender, based on right, racial background, whatever it is. We have to give minority voices um, in our meetings. We're not doing a very good job of that. In the, you know, it's, that's it's an interesting one for me because as a white guy, one of the things I, I had a guest on, we talked about diversity and inclusion and, and what he really emphasized was one of the keys is you always have a voice in the room. You you never have a fear of, am I allowed to talk here? You just assume, even if you grew up poor, it doesn't, you just have an assumption, hey, I'm in the room, I'm allowed to talk. And recognizing not everyone in the room feels that same way. And sometimes we need to say, hey, Ted, hey, Tina, what do you think about this? Just to give that opening to let someone in because they may not feel as comfortable that they have a voice in that room. And then if they, to your point, if they do, encouraging, promoting, saying, allowing them to know, hey, you can talk more, you can come in more, there's a place for you at this table. And I don't see enough of that in most situations I'm in. Yeah, I agree. And that's kind of step one. So give people the voice and the, you know, in the meeting, then the second step is, then that's where biases tend to to happen when we hear the response. So for example, for, um, for women, it's the assertive aggressive stereotype that comes up. And I dealt with this just last week in a workshop, you know, if a man says it one way, it's taken if a woman says it the same way, it's, you know, deemed as aggressive and, and studies have shown this. But a woman told me her story. They were talking about challenges and everyone was talking about the challenges. But when she talked about the same challenges after she got pulled aside that she was being too emotional. And I've experienced her now in a number of workshops and I have not experienced her as emotional. She's even cute. And she's like, I was saying the same thing. As everyone else. And uh, and so she called him on it. She said, help me understand how what I was saying was different. How did you perceive that as different? And and should that be the case? So I was so proud of her for, for having that conversation. Yeah. So that, that's the phase, phase two. We have to be open and non-judgmental to what people are saying. And then one of the, so now, now 
you have that space, you're in it, you're sharing. One of the challenges that you highlight, and, and I share this with a lot of young women, uh, a colleague at work had referenced a study that talked about this exact topic, is that a lot of women, when they are given that space and they're speaking, or even when they're sending emails, they use language that has a lot of what you referred to as weakening qualifiers. Can you explain to our listeners what are weakening qualifiers and why do we want to eliminate those from our vocabulary, whether it's sharing in a meeting, sending an email to someone? And what are some examples that you would say, cut this word or that word out, stop using this as an example? Yeah. So we may or may not want to cut them out, but I'll get get to that in a second. So weakening qualifiers are you know, well, this might be kind of a crazy idea, but, or sorry, I have to, right? So it's that apologetic, it's that downplaying, it's that, well, what if we kind of think about doing this versus here's my idea, here's the plan moving forward, here's what I need from you. And so women tend to put a lot more of that weakening language around it, and it tends to feel apologetic, you know, unleaderly and whatnot. So this has been around for a long time. Um, And so for most women, I say, you know, power up your language by being more directive and decisive. This is kind of what bugs me about this. So there was was some great research done by Amy Cuddy and, and her colleagues that talked about the magical combination that any human wants from their leaders these days is a combination of warmth and strength. Strength is, you know, competence and direct, you know, to be able to take direction and manage change and be assertive when required. Like we want that strength, right? To know our leader is taking us where we need to go. And then the warmth is, oh, everything we're seeing now around empathy and listening and understanding. And, and like, so we want leaders to have that balance. Of course, when they laid on the gender research on top, what did they find? Men more strong in the strength, women more strong in the warmth. And even further, they said uh, for men to be seen as competent, they just had to be confident. But for women to be seen as competent, they had to have a combination of confidence and warmth. So basically, the women had to also be liked to be seen as competent, whereas men being liked didn't really matter. Um, So there's a big bias right there, right? But what I'm saying is, I don't think we should try to equalize you know, being strong or equalize, you know, jerk behavior or equalize being aggressive. Like we don't want to equalize that. We want to normalize warmth and strength. We want to normalize empathy. We want to normalize. So what I'd say is I wish we didn't have to say, well, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt you after hours, but blah, 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 blah. You know, I think we should be able to all lead the way toward this model of leadership that is a combination of warmth and strength. But for now, I would say yes for a lot of women to appear more decisive, to appear more confident that we should use more directive language. And what is it do you think about some of the qualifiers that make it seem not strong or not leadership-like? I think people perceive it as not being certain. So if I'm in a meeting and I give an idea and say, well, this might seem like a crazy idea, but how about we try, right? People don't want crazy ideas. People don't want, there's other ways to say that, you know, here, I don't want to use out of the box because everyone now is going back to out of the box uh, terminology, but, you know, here is that we haven't tried this. Let's look at the merits of trying it this way, 
right? That's, that's getting across the exact same concept. We haven't tried this in the past. I suggest we move forward by exploring this. It's a lot more directive and certain sounding then. Here's a crazy idea. It's like, well, if I'm not certain that that's going to work, why should anyone else believe that that could be a crazy idea that might work? So the psychology around, you know, people want to know that what you're putting forward, that you have a belief behind it and that there's a, maybe a certainty that it might work. And even something as simple as instead of saying, I think we should do this, say we should do this. Right. So you're removing, I think you're removing something that implies ambiguity or uncertainty. Yeah. Or I, I believe I feel, and there is a place for those. So if I'm having a one-on-one conversation with someone and I want to talk to them about the impact of something they did on me, then I can say, I, f- this is how it made me felt. I, I felt, you know, this and the, you know, so, so we can have a conversation. So that, that's fine when we're taking ownership for the impact on us. In the the basic meeting, yeah, we want to lead with our observations, our insights, and our experience. So here's the plan that I'm working on, right? X, Y, and Z. What are your thoughts on on this? Versus, well, I believe we should go in this direction, and I think that A strategy might work, and I think B, it just sounds too uncertain for humans. It's like, here's the plan I'm going on. Give me your feedback. What do we need to do about it? Yeah, that sounded way better than the first one. And maybe maybe I'm just wired that way, but you sounded so certain right there. I was like, yes, I'm doing what she said. <laughs> well, that doesn't mean I'm not inviting feedback. It's just, I, I want to sound certain. Well, and, and I also talk about what strategic language is. So if we want to be perceived as more strategic, then there is strategic language. And it's not about sounding smart. It's not about buzzword bingo and all that stuff. It's about speaking in the language of your business. So if I say my vision for this project is, and it links to our strategic plan like this, here's the plan of action. What's your feedback on what, you know, what the risk strategies might be? Then I sound very strategic if I use that language that we're saying what's important in our organization. So that's a critical strategy I work with leaders on too, is there is something known as, you know, being perceived as strategic through the language you use. I love the idea that I'm going to dive even deeper into it. The one question I wanted to to finish off with you, Tammy, is the I, I found this absolutely fascinating and looked at my life and realized how accurate it is for me relative to what I see from my wife is you noted that there was a study that illustrates men tend to create networking relationship that relationships that provide multiple resources such as friendship, career, etc. while women don't like their worlds to collide. And I I looked at my situation and almost every one of my close friends is someone who I either work with or worked with who is at a high level in another organization that I can go have lunch with and pick their brain. And it's sort of like there's always that dual we're buddies and we can help advance each other's life and career personally, professionally, and financially. Like it, 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 they almost have to tick all three boxes in order for me to be like, yeah, that's someone I want to invest my time into because I want to help them in those areas and, and they'll help me in those areas. But a lot of women are like, I have my running friend, I have my work friend, and these, these don't mix. What, why is that? Yeah. You know what? I've been trying to figure out why we do that. But research has shown 
very clearly that, that women tend to have smaller, closer knit, separated, as you said, networks used primarily for psychosocial support. So that shoulder to lean on that, you know, to chat it out, that kind of thing. Whereas men, if you, um, you know, larger acquaintance based in what you talked about, multiplex ties. So this person, you know, ticks all those boxes. I'm not, I haven't, I, I don't know. I haven't cracked the nut yet on why, on why we do that. I experienced it myself when I took a maternity leave of 14 months and I had met this wonderful group of moms in my neighborhood. In 14 months, we barely even knew what each other did embarrassing story. This happened twice when I went back to work. I was facilitating a senior leadership workshop at a big bank and in walks one of the moms. And we both just stared at each other and we're like, I go, you're a senior leader here? She's like, you're my teacher? I mean, and it happened twice. I went into another big client event and, you know, there's, there's Lorraine. She's and we're like, what? So uh, I think when we were in our home world, we were wanting so much to just, you know, disconnect and focus on, you know, the time with her family, knowing that it was probably short because we were all going back to work and you're just so trying to get through the day with an infant, with all these problems. And, and I think we were just so focused on that. And, and I always say, you know, shame on me. Like, would it, killed us to just say, oh, and by the way, you know, where did you work before you had this kid? Like, that would, that would have been a very simple question. And, and so that's the first piece. But then the second piece is, that, that, so forming different networks is, will be important for women, but then leveraging them. So women have an extreme disgust, like I'm talking disgust. I mean, it is so aversive for women to, to pick up the phone, as you say, and, and, and say, okay, I need a favor, or I'm going to meet this person, or can you introduce me to that person, or can you kind of grease the wheel over here? Like for us, that is such a, in our minds, a toxic thing to do. And I think it goes back to that, that belief in meritocracy, that, that it's unfair in some way, that it's, it's, that that's not the way the world should work. And um, I think we have to get over that because we have to understand that, that the world works based on relationships. And so, you know, being able to, to give and take in relationships is a, is a critical thing to do. And that was one of the ones I felt bad because I, I, wa- I wanted to touch on that one as well, is, is I've got a great young women leaders on my team. And when I say to them, hey, for this or that, why don't you reach out to some of the people you know in industry, whether, whether it's men or women, it's like you're a director of finance, reach out to the directors of finance at these other seven shops right? Like we're all peers, we'll pick their brain. And part of it is they don't seem to recognize maybe that, you know, picking their brain is, it's not like it's a mercenary act. It's like, there's quid pro quo. If you're like, hey, Tina, what do you do at your shop? Here's what we do here. I'd love us both to be able to help each other in our roles. Like, how do we help them? How do I help these young women realize like, you have just as much or more to offer the person on the other side of the phone. So don't be afraid to make that call. Don't be afraid to say, hey, do you want to just grab a coffee? Do you want to grab lunch? And we can just share notes so we can both do better in our job. How do we get them to overcome that fear? Yeah. So, and you're hitting on the biggest thing, the fear of that I, I'm undervalued to my network, that I can't give the same. And, and so sometimes it's, it's just helping them prepare for the conversation. And then that's what I do with a lot of the women is, is just help the preparation. So in this example, it might be, you know what, 
tell the person that, that you'd love to talk about, you know, the top three, five, whatever it is, trends you're seeing in your industry, the, the five biggest client challenges you're fo- or customers, whatever it is, internal challenges you're focused on. And even just then preparing, of course, they know those things, right? Your biggest team leadership issue right now, given what's happening in, you know, in uh, the, the war for talent, like just helping them brainstorm even the categories of topics. And in that conversation, you know, just even say, okay, what do you think? What's your top three? Here's what I'm seeing. Here's my top three. So just even helping them prepare for it, I think can spur some confidence and knowing that they don't have to talk the whole time. (laughs) So preparing a few good questions, right? can get them uh, a long way in, in both feeling that they have value and then knowing that it's not like you're on for an hour. It's not like you and me, I'm on for two hours here talking to you. <laughs> they, they just have to ask a good question, right? They have to ask a few good questions, have a coffee. That's why it's so much easier being on this side of the desk. I've been on that side a few times. It's just such a different experience. It's like, wait a second. It's like, now I have to do the 70%. I like the 30%. (laughs) um, So on that note, uh, is there anything we didn't cover off today that you really want to hit for the listeners? I think I'll just end on, um, and it's, it's the chapter seven. And, and we obviously, we talked a lot about kind of perfectionism and guilt and ruminate, rumination is, we haven't named it, but that's the, you know, when the same thoughts go round and round in our heads over and over. Um, but what I want to point out is self-compassion, right? Is a huge, huge under leveraged free thing that we can do for ourselves. And as I've been exploring kind of the the burnout and the stress and the resilience areas of research, all of that self-compassion is one of the number one things we can do, even above exercise, even above, you know, forest bathing and getting out in nature. All of those things are great. Netflixing and watching, like all the things are great, but self-compassion is the number one thing that can can help us let go to less be more, release some of the guilt, release some of the expectations to know that we're doing a good job. So if we can practice the skill of self-compassion and again, anyone, but especially women, it's free and it's so effective. I'll I'll just leave the listeners with that. Yeah. I'm glad you added that because I I had a note to talk to you about um, social media and Instagram and Pinterest and the the negative impact it, it can sometimes have on working moms thinking they need to be perfect at every single thing they do and Valentine's candies for kids. Like, I just don't understand it anymore. It's gotten too complex. Just give them a bunch of Tootsie Rolls and let them go. The um, Where can our listeners find you, Tammy? So my name, uh, TammyHearman.com, H-E-E-R-M-A-N-N. That's my website. I'm also on uh, LinkedIn and Instagram with my name. Uh, And of course, my book, Reframe Your Story, is available on Amazon and all major book retailers. Perfect. We'll get all that in the show notes. And thank you for joining me today. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Clint. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy.